having had the chance to speak to everyone over the past few days, to share the experience of being here these uh, five days and nights. There's a sense of a lot of uh, sincere effort having been made. To stay with that which isn't easy to stay with, to cultivate that which is praiseworthy and allows us to to receive into awareness the actuality of our experience, to begin at least to explore the possibility of discovering some ease within simplicity. Perhaps discovering uh, more resources than we thought we had to be able to be with uh, the uncomfortable. remembering again the reminder that the Buddha gave us that this possibility of freedom, this possibility of realizing that which is not born and that which doesn't die. The possibility of realizing the peaceful is is accessible. It's always here and now. One of the words that we chant every morning in that chunk of Pali at the bottom of the first page. Qualities of the Dhamma, which is sandittiko. It's, it's always here and now. This peaceful, timeless, unmoving aspect It's a calico, it's not uh, limited to a, a certain time. Only at our best, or only when we have superb samadhi. Just to, to remember that actually the this phrase I think I mentioned earlier in the retreat, Vimutti Sarasa Bedama, that freedom, Sara, Vimutti is freedom, Sara is essence. It's at the heart of Sabedama, all conditions. Even the conditions when we feel heavy, even the conditions when we feel overwhelmed, even the conditions when we feel peaceful in space. Sometimes we get uh, so contracted around our particular experience that it's hard for us to imagine that as we get mesmerized by the perceptions of this is too difficult or I don't understand or overwhelmed by perceptions of resistance or discouragement or 
the myriad ones that we encounter. So notice the, the Buddha is encouraging in various ways to get us to contemplate conditions rather than just believe the appearance of conditions. On the appearance, the apparent nature of things in terms of our worldly way of conventional way, normal way of talking about what is. We talk about good and bad and me and you and enlightened and deluded and horrible and beautiful. And that has its place in terms of being able to negotiate the world. Not that we've realized it yet, but just to, to reflect at uh, at least the suggestion that there is this freedom at the heart of all conditions. Or this suggestion, this other phrase that we have looked at some, the heart is radiant. There is radiance of heart. But because of the tendency to be confused by what moves through the heart, we don't see this radiance. This root condition which gives rise to the sense of going somewhere, the sense of being frustrated, the sense of success, the sense of failure. This root condition that the Buddha called avidya, the not, not seeing clearly or ignorance. Or I prefer to pronounce it in a slightly different way, the ignoring. Somehow not seeing an aspect, being locked into seeing only in a certain way, missing out on, misconstruing. That with a vijaya's condition, when there's the condition of not really clearly knowing, seeing, understanding that which is moving through the heart, these experiences of getting up and trying and failing and succeeding, being energized and exhausted and calm and more calm and turbulent. tendency to misconstrue, misunderstand those conditions, to claim them, to delight in them and then lean on them, to become them, what's called birth, to resist and be terrified of, fend off in the process of this grasping hold of, avoiding, enshrouded in this aspect of avijja, not clear seeing condition for what the Buddha called birth and death. And yet with the condition of vidya or clear seeing, awareness, understanding. When there's that condition, can give rise to the recognition of that which already is, that which has always been, that we muttisara, that the freedom which is the essence of, 
all conditions. Rather than encouraging us just to believe that, he's suggesting just to remind us that don't look too far away. But rather than just encouraging us to believe it, he, the Buddha offered the practicality of, of welcoming, investigating these experiences, that which is moving through the heart. Evening of the fifth full day and night, of moving through the heart now, manifesting. Whereas the evening of our first night together, we could say this experience is empty of the first night. It's empty of the second night. That which is not here, we can call it empty of that. When the Buddha spoke about emptiness, he introduced people in in a very accessible way rather than making it too high-flown philosophical. He used the example of um, when his uh, disciples were in a monastery, he would say this moment is empty of the impressions of town, of home, of city life. That which is not here is empty of that. And what is manifesting is, is here. when we're eating breakfast and our experience was empty of the meditation hall and there's breakfast in the afternoon practice what happened to the experience of breakfast it's empty of that it was there and then where'd it go no one could say it doesn't exist you could say it doesn't exist And yet if it doesn't exist, something happened. So it doesn't exist quite capture it. Because it does exist. It does. Breakfast. Lives. That's <laughs> true to a certain extent, but then again it's when you keep saying it does, where is it? This is this, this difficulty of saying it does, it doesn't of views, of being able to start to get a feeling for conditions which arise when circumstances are right and then they dissolve as the circumstances shift. Jennifer read it uh, the other night, just this example, this way of looking at this quality of emptiness. Suppose a man who is not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they drove along and he watched them and carefully examined them 
and after he had carefully examined them, they would appear to him empty, unreal, and insubstantial. In exactly the same way does the monk behold all that is form, feeling, perception, volition, states of knowing, states of consciousness, whether they be of the past or the present or the future, far or near, as he observes them, examines them carefully. And after carefully examining them, they appear empty, void, without a self. It's there, amazing bubble, maybe with colors, size, gone. Various thoughts and moods, configurations of today, of yesterday, some which seem so appealing, some which seem so bleak and boring, some which might have seemed terrifying. Where are they now? Some of them in this moment, you would say the moment is empty of it. And yet what is manifesting now, we can say, is manifesting now as we make contact with this moment. The Buddha taught that there's there is an unborn, an unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. And if it were not for this unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, there would be no escape from the realm of the of the born, the originated, the created, the formed. That would not be possible. So what could be what could be referred to this always here and now? Spacious essence which is not born, not created. And the Buddha taught that the gateway, the gateway to this experience is by being willing to be with the created, be with what we are in contact with, the suffering, the difficulty, the body, the feelings, the moods, what's called the khandas, what's called the aspects of what we identify with is our life. That's what was being referred to in this uh, discourse that we chanted this evening, this famous discourse on the Heart Sutta. When Kuan Yin was practicing the Prajna Paramita, what's called the gateway, gateway to the Buddha. Prajna is the Sanskrit word for Panya or wisdom, that which we've been developing in these last couple of days. Paramita means virtue, that which carries us. It is said that this prajna paramita, the 
the virtue, the aspect of wisdom is what is the mother of the Buddha. The Buddha emerges from this place. Wisdom emerges from this place. He said as Avalokiteshvara was practicing the Prajnaparamita, he, he realized the emptiness of the khanda, of the aggregates. So in our uh, discourse we have an opportunity to, in our investigation, opportunity to, to actually make contact with the aggregate of form our body. Start to notice the body changing. The aggregate of feeling, pleasing and unpleasing, pleasing and painful experience. And the discourse goes on to say, form is not different from emptiness, emptiness is not different from form, form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself is form. All this kind of talk that from one way of looking just looks like uh, nonsense. And one has to remember this particular uh, teaching is pointing to the most profound aspect of the Buddhist realization pointing to the essential, essential insight, pointing to that which is beyond concepts. If we just take it on the surface level, it just looks like uh, uh, rubbish. It's encouraging us to look at our relationship to, to concepts, our relationship to the world. When we have a word, when we have a concept about me, it sounds like a thing. We can talk about now, we can talk about me, that word. And yet when we actually point to this moment, what do we, when we actually touch this moment, what do we, what do we experience? When we experience an in-breath, and changes and then dissolves, becomes empty of in-breath. There's no in-breath. Then there's out-breath. There's sound. There's a sound. And we could say in that moment there's empty of silence. But we notice the sound and then the sound is gone. So the name, the name for sound, the name for breath is just a name. It is said that all conditions, all these conditions, all conditioned dhammas, things that come together, like our body, that came together from them, our mother and father. This retreat that's come together by us all gathering here. The evening that's come together by assembling at this time. All conditioned dhammas are like dreams. There's moments when they seem to be so real, and then there's moments when, where did it go? 
our conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops in a lightning flash, contemplate them thus, said the Buddha. When we're only fixated on the condition and don't have the breadth of attention to notice the emptying of the condition, the dissolving of the condition, then we only lean on conditions. In Africa, we have wonderful storms where we live on our mountains. Especially in the summertime, almost every day or every afternoon or at least every other day, the uh, this big heat and the clouds gather over the mountains above Lesotho, and you start to hear the rumbling, the excitement. The air starts to get charged, and then, uh, sometimes the storm comes in. I mean, particularly at, at nighttime, one can have this this immensity of darkness, this amazing crashing and rumbling of the thunder. And then when the lightning flashes come, it's for me it's very exciting. You can see that flash, consciousness goes and waits for the next one, this incredible fork. And in Africa at least there's purple purple haze around the flashes. Maybe I'm seeing things, but that's why. <laughs> And you can see something in the heart is, is, is waiting for the next one, the next crash and flash. And you can see the mind looking for that, and looking for the next one. What? Sometimes we're so busy looking for the next one, looking for the next one. Do we really notice that that awesome flash then dissolves back into the immensity? Dissolves back into the darkness? This rumbling roar merges back into the silence. But when consciousness is excited by and fixated on the sound, on the form, sometimes it doesn't notice the context, doesn't notice the space. There is that place where all things merge, what the Buddha called Nibbana, or the undying, or the uncreated, whatever word one wants to talk about, one wants to call it. There's that place where everything comes together, everything merges, a place of non-grasping, a place of non-ignorance. But when consciousness is so fixated on form, on the body, fixated on feeling, whether it's pleasant or not, whether we like it or not, or fixated on trying to preserve and keep what's good, then sometimes we don't notice. We don't notice the, the spaciousness, the emptiness that things keep dissolving into. Where could all things merge? An image that, that often helps, helps me to realize this is, is the sea. When one just looks at the surface of the sea, the, the attention 
Also, when we go to the beach, the attention notices the waves. The waves are very big in Africa, bigger than what I'm used to. So I have a lot of respect for the waves. The first time I went in, just to just to, to swim, I thought, well, they look big, but it should be all right. I walked out, and the first one smashed me into the into the sand. It ripped my suit off. I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even know it, and I stood up, kind of gathered. So that makes an impression. And so then you tend to notice the waves. Is that a big one? Oh gosh, that looks like a big one coming. And you say that's a little one. Or you say no, no, no. Look, look, that's an amazing one. Someone's surfing on that one. You know. And so you know, one can notice. One can designate. Consciousness can easily designate. Can find an edge on big one, dangerous one, beautiful one. I can looking at the sparkling ones. Like notice how consciousness does that. It finds, and they seem really different. But it's a way of talking, isn't it? It's a way of talking. Because, I mean, really, does that... I mean, we don't usually cry a lot when that big wave crashes on the shore. We don't say, oh, God, it's tragic. It's just in its prime. Mashed on a rock. Lord, how could you do it? You know, we, we don't, because it's obvious, you know, we, we, we see that. But you go, where is the place where all the waves merge? I mean, actually, waves are water, aren't they? I mean, actually, it's part of the sea. I mean, in actuality, if we just don't just notice the surface go down a little bit and start to realize that as one goes into the depths, you can't separate the big wave from the small wave. Or the innumerable tiny little ripples. As one goes down, there's that place where they all merge. It's all, it's all part of a totality. It's all part of the ocean. It's just an analogy, but consciousness fixates on form. What we call ourselves, my body. Your body. Guy house. My circumstance fixates on that and then identifies, creates with an assumption, it's me, not you. A little more space, please. Here, what I want, what I don't want. That's what consciousness, it tends to do that. Oh, come closer, come closer. I like that. Oh, get away. When consciousness is always outward focused, it then takes for this basic assumption takes something to be me. And we, the Buddha even said we climb onto it, upadana, which is translated sometimes as grasping. Literally, in Nepali, means we, we climb onto it. Assuming. So what kind of things do we climb onto? Energy, when we're feeling good? A compliment? That was pretty nice talk. He said, oh, yeah. Oh. Climb onto that. <laughs> then the next time you notice the eyes drooping, people nodding off, <laughs> people criticizing. If one's climbed onto that, then, then, then when that condition ends, there's a sense of being dislocated. When we climb onto something, if we lean on something and it shifts, then there's a sense of falling. 
We can lean on the success. We can lean on moments of praise. We can lean on moments of pleasure. Ah. And to that extent of becoming, then when it shifts, there's the sense of being dislocated. That tendency to seek security in the conditioned realm, which is like lightning flash, it's got to be uncertain. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, we're looking for certainty in a place that nature is uncertain. Not through any fault of his. He says, like going up to a duck and saying, why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> or he said, it's like one being upset that a monkey is not sitting peacefully. That was another one of his things. He says, you know, expecting a monkey to go into samadhi. <laughs> Why, why don't you just cross legs and calm down? <laughs> Monkeys don't do that. Most of them mind. <laughs> the nature of conditions, the nature of forms, from body to flower to plant to retreat centers, to retreats, to sound, to the earth. solar system to become otherwise. That's the form, not to mention, that's the, the solid stuff. Not to mention the, the impressions, the feelings, the perceptions, the volitions of going toward and going away. When we actually start, as we have been doing, by cultivating some presence to make contact with this ever-changing ever, 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 ever changing moments. Sounds, sights, and feelings. We're hoping to find stability by owning that. And getting upset. Like getting upset, I can always say, at a chicken for not quacking. When we start to see change, then dukkha is not a value judgment, but its nature, the nature of conditions, is unreliable. It's not saying lightning is bad. It is perfect as it is, but if you want to lie on it, if you want to find security there, it's unreliable. That's its nature. It's not certain. Pleasure is uncertain. Thought is uncertain. It's there and it's gone. And if something is continually becoming otherwise, we can call it mine, we can call this body mine, we can call things mine, but the Buddha said it's not really mine. Anatta, not self, just means it's just a way of talking to think that it's mine. And conventionally we talk about mine and yours. to start to get a feeling for the stress that comes from expecting the changing to, to provide stability. Getting a feeling for that. And actually consciously reflecting, as we did in the monastery frequently, every day, all that I call mine, all that is beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Not as a morbid thought, as a, rea as a reality. 
all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Just as a sobering, sobering, not a morbid thought, but as a reality check, which can also encourage <coughs> us to appreciate what we're in contact with now, knowing, knowing that the forms are like the waves, they're there and, they're, and, and, and then they shift and change. But can we get a feeling for what the waves keep dissolving back into, what the forms dissolve back into? Can we start to get a sense of this thirsting for finding, finding outwardly what the Buddha called nibbida, this weariness, is, is helpful when we start to re- be weary of this activity of continually trying to find security outwardly by grasping. The Buddha put it this way, which do you think is more? The flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth, united with the undesired, separated from the desired. Which do you think is more, this or the waters of the four oceans? Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. And whilst we were thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four oceans. Thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, undergone misfortune, filled the graveyard full, truly, long enough to be dissatisfied with all the forms of existence, long enough to turn away and free yourself from them. Holding that carefully, not as an ultimate position, but this continual external seeking, trying to grab a lightning flash, being upset when it's gone. When are we also going to appreciate that that's the nature of the flash to keep dissolving back into the immensity? Each wave to keep dissolving back into the depth. Consciousness, when it's outwardly focused, is you, is me. But when we look at the range of vision, when we just look and see, there's just a field of vision. Who cuts it up into, well, there's you, and there's you, and there's, and there's me? Who does that? Where do these edges come from? Our thoughts. The way we relate to the thoughts. Can we get a feeling, and with thought, and with Kuan Yin's method of meditation, what's called the one who listens to the sounds of the world? listens at ease. In a famous discourse the Buddha gave called the Sarangama Sutra, and the Buddha was trying to find a method that would be suitable for Ananda, his beloved disciple who had gotten into some trouble, and was most learned, but still hadn't deepened his insight. He could remember all the teachings, but he was still getting into difficult scrapes. So the Buddha had a big assembly 
And the different great disciples talked about their methods of awakening to try to find one suitable for Ananda. And then at the end of the whole big long list, the Buddha turns to Kuan Yin or Avalokitesva. And Avalokitesva talked about using listening, using the ear to hear the sound and to keep reflecting on that which remains, on the source of sound, on the source of hearing, on the hearing nature itself. Then the Buddha turned to the great Manjushri Bodhisattva, the foremost in wisdom, and said, well, what do you think? And, and uh, Manjushri just said, I'll go with Kuan Yin's method. <laughs> sound is very helpful, and it's sound. We're chasing after sound. Sound is the essence of thought, and thought is the essence of what gives rise to the sense of the way we receive our thoughts, me and you and good and bad and tomorrow and yesterday. It's with thoughts that we have all these views about what I am. It's around our relationship to thought that this essential freedom is lost when we contract around this body being me, this feelings being me, this experience being me. But we can also allow each, allow each thought and sound to reveal itself. What remains each thought appears what remains when each wave of a thought dissolves back into the presence, into the silence. What remains? Getting a feeling for the sounds and the thoughts that we continually and continually generate and create the sense of me. I'm not doing so well. Can that thought appear in the heart? Can we notice that thought and then notice when it dissolves what remains? Who are we when we're not telling ourselves who we are? I had so much uh, going through universities and this and that, a lot of um, emphasis is put on certain kinds of thoughts, and having good thoughts and penetrating thoughts and thoughts to demolish other people's arguments and all that kind of stuff. And it was an incredible relief when Ajahn Chah taught us to, you can learn as much from your stupid thoughts as you can from your wisest thoughts. Because every thought that arises ceases. Every condition keeps taking us back to the suchness, the stillness. Our most brilliant thought, oh, I'm, gosh, I'm, I'm heading for Buddhahood. Heading for Buddhahood. Can we feel that and dissolve? Noticing the ripples, the feelings associated with it. I'll never get there. It's impossible. Freedom is the essence of all conditions except me. 
happened? Can we notice that thought? Notice the gap after that thought. Get a feeling for the emptiness. When we come into a room when none of us are here, we can say that it's empty. And maybe if we're looking for an empty shrine room because we feel like a battery hen sometimes in here, maybe we'll come in and see it empty and then think, oh, go out for a minute and come back to find our empty room and then we notice, oh, somebody's there. Where did the emptiness go? We can conventionally say it's occupied by the, that person, but did that person destroy the emptiness? Within the form of that person there, it's surrounded by, infused with the emptiness. The form is within the emptiness. The emptiness is within the form. When there's a thought, we call that the form, filling the space of the heart. You can say when it dissolves for a moment and the heart is silent, we can say it's empty. But getting a feeling of how that when we really see the changing nature of all conditions, it's empty of any static, any entity. It is what it is, continually changing, dissolving back into space. Can we get a feeling for trusting, just in moments, a feeling, the stress of trying to find security by seeking. Can we get a feeling for relaxing a little bit and seeing if we can have moments of resting in the silence, resting in the spaciousness, allowing the sounds and the thoughts and the forms to come and go and getting the feeling of the difference between leaning on them to keep finding out well who am I am I okay oh I'm okay oh I'm not okay oh but I'm okay today but I'm not okay getting a feeling I mean, how many times are we going to be hypnotized by the okay and the not okay I'm doing good and the not good I'm really happy really not happy or as Ajahn Chah would go, he'd pick up the spittoon and, and just, uh, he'd ask you, what are you doing? And then he would just kind of spittoon entirely and chew beetle nuts until they spit in it. And uh, like a little waste basket. And he's got a rim, a round rim, and he would say, well, what are you going to do? And then he would be going around the rim. And what are you going to do after that? Oh, well, and after that? And he would get a feeling, what the, how many times do we have to, it's okay, it's not okay. I'm happy, I'm not happy. I'm getting there, oh, I'm not quite there. I think I'm pretty close, so I'll, I'll never get there and go around and around. Have the feeling of that that's how it is, the dawn and the dusk, the certainty and the doubt, the okay, the not okay. It's emptiness, it's warm. No, 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 it's empty, it's warm. It is, it isn't. The feeling for those are just designations. The thoughts, the conditions. And in moments when we're weary enough seeing what they really are, 
You don't have to convince yourself that you can't grasp a waterfall. We just go up to it and, and try. How long can we keep a thought going? I'm enlightened. I'm in... Well, forget that one. I'm not enlightened. I'm not... I, I, I see it for what it is. So in this sense, if one is ever tired, don't be... Sometimes a lot of energy is nice, but sometimes it's not so bad. One of my greatest teachers was in deep exhaustion from being really ill, really unwell, because I was so energetic, the one doing things so much. In the monastery, get up earlier, go to the abbot, wanted to learn yoga. I used to teach yoga, used to do pranayama, used to walk on my hands all the time, used to be a big athlete, used to be able to do a million things. See, when I got really the whole sense of what I used to be able to do was kind of gone, I'm discouraged, I'm useless, I'm useless. But then by, by the grace of the Buddhist teaching and the encouragement of some other great uh, uh, saints that uh, have a good fortune, like Sri Nisaradatta, to, to receive teachings uh, from, having the feeling that my mind was so focused outward of trying to get enlightening us somehow out there. I miss this essential teaching that it, the freedom is here, always here and now. And when one is really tired, one is really exhausted, that can be actually a friend. If we can learn to relinquish will. It's our volition that's always going out, it's always pushing off. If we can truly in moments just let be and relax, what happens when we let the thoughts go? Whether they say they're good, bad, this, that, they are what they are, but letting go of grasping or rejecting, just resting with, leaning, being supported by. Get a feeling for that place where each effort dissolves, each sound dissolves. just need to trust a little more that there is something to rest into. There is this heart. There is this listening. We can get confidence in it by just letting each thought take us back to the listening. Each sound. Each place. When I had a shoulder operation and was in a hospital, had screws put into my shoulder from an old, uh, from a wrestling injury. It was very painful and I was sitting up in the bed and I wanted to lie down. I was tired, but I was scared to let go of the handle. I was scared, oh, I'm going to fall. How long is it going to be? Oh, I don't know. Will it really catch me? And, and finally able just to, to, to let go and there was some anxiety, but then I was caught by the bed, caught by the ground. Can we actually practice? It's okay to die. Practice by letting a thought die, a sound die, an outbreath die. Moments of coaxing ourselves to trust that we're then being caught in this refuge of listening.
And within this refuge, there is the body, and within the body, there is the space. And we can call it empty, we can call it form, but whatever we call it, it's just a calling, just a name. So these particular teachings are encouraging us to not grasp some particular designation, but get a feeling for resting in the nameless and the formless. Finishing with a reading from the early teachings of the Buddha, a young student came to him named Kappa. He said, Sir, to the Buddha, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. And death and decay overwhelm them. For their sakes, sir, tell me where to find an island, where is there that which is solid beyond the reach of all this pain? (coughs) Kappa, said the master, for the sake of those beings stuck in the middle of the river of being and becoming, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession. A place of non-possession, non-grasping. It is the end of death and decay. That is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness realize this. They're completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, working for death. They cannot fall into his power. finishing this day, acknowledging the context around us, the spaciousness, that which has allowed us to undergo this experience, those who keep things going at home for us, those here at the center that have offered the food, have helped support our time here those who've made it possible for us to be alive, those teachings through the ages that we're having the opportunity to contemplate, allowing ourselves to sense for a moment that we're intimately connected to the totality, a place of non-possession, non-grasping. May we share the goodness easefully, heartfully, the goodness of our lives, the welfare of all beings above, below, and all around.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.